hello, my fellow Americans, as well as all other human beings on planet Earth. This is Better Than Washington. My name is Duncan, and I will be your host. This is the podcast where we review presidents in a comparison-based context. Were they better than Washington? We'll see who was good, who was bad, and who we won't forget about because that's not how history works. But, I mean, I'm not going to hold it against you for not really thinking about them all the time. Today is part two of our discussion of George Washington's fourth year as president, as well as the final year of his first term. This period of time ran from April 1st, 1792 to March 4th, 1793. Last week, we talked about the economics, diplomacy, and war scores for the Washington presidency during this year. We're now going to look at the integrity, civil rights, and bipartisanship scores, but not necessarily in that order because we talk about civil rights first, but you understand what I mean by all this. Also, there is a brief heads up for you because next week, or rather next time, when I post an episode about George Washington's fifth year as president, there is a possibility that, just like these previous two episodes, that episode will also have to be split in half. My schedule has been a bit wonky lately, and it's been hard to keep a consistent track record, so I am releasing smaller episodes consistently rather than the larger episodes less consistently. So I hope that is okay for you guys, and I do appreciate you listening to the podcast, and I want to make sure that I'm still providing something of some manner of quality to you. Uh, Thank you for your time and patience. But now we go back to looking at Washington's civil rights record. Has anything new happened to improve or worsen the civil rights of the citizens of the United States? Did Washington's actions or lack thereof allow these events to happen? Yeah, he actually managed to make it a lot worse this year, even on top of everything else we already discussed in the previous episode. On February 12, 1793, George Washington signed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 into law. I shouldn't have to explain why any law that encourages slavery and therefore also upholds the physical, mental, emotional, and sexual abuse that goes with that practice. I don't know why I said abuse there. I meant to say violence. The violence of those actions. Regardless, I don't have to explain why a law that encourages all of that is a bad law. And if you don't understand why that's bad, this might not be the podcast for you. But what made the Fugitive Slave Act exceptionally horrible was how it enforced slavery. First, it made providing any form of assistance to people escaping slavery a federal crime rather than a state crime. Food, shelter, directions. Give any of these to someone accused of being a slave, and you could face a $500 fine which, for many citizens of the United States, also meant several years in debtor's prison. It also clarified that there were no statutes of limitations for escaping slavery, meaning that people who had the courage to free themselves would always be at risk for future enslavement. And, because it was federal law, someone who escaped slavery had nowhere to go within the United States to avoid recapture. So, yeah, one of the worst laws that ever existed. 
It's also the reason why so many people in the Underground Railroad we'll discuss during the Civil War era chose to flee to Canada instead of just a northern state. But even after all of that, the Fugitive Slave Act still manages to set the bar even lower for what we can expect out of the civil rights concerns of the nation. Judges and courts enforcing the law had two separate burden of proof thresholds when they enforced it. If you were trying to kidnap somebody to, quote, return them to slavery, regardless of if they actually were a slave, then in most courts, you only needed to show a signed affidavit to a judge. But if you were the person being kidnapped, you somehow needed to prove you were never a slave. And how exactly would you do that? Would you ask the court to send letters to everyone you had ever met, summoning them to court to testify on your behalf? Of course, if someone liked you enough to testify on your behalf, then they had a vested interest in lying about your background to prevent you from returning or just being introduced to slavery, or at least that's what the other party would accuse in court. And seeing how the United States didn't start issuing birth certificates until 1907, you had no way of proving who you were, where you were born, or who your parents were. So in the end, it was usually your word or reputation against the signed, court-approved documentation. Not the best odds in the most favorable circumstances. Then there are the layers of racial and classist prejudice that many people in the United States, including judges, might apply to your case. First, going back to the whole reputation versus legal documents thing, pro-slavery advocates had spent decades trying to convince their peers that Africans and African Americans, as well as other non-European races, were somehow less intelligent, honest, or whatever than European Americans and Caucasian Americans. Not sure if those two things are different, but I'm just going to roll with that. So if a particular judge was either an open fan of those theories or had been unwittingly conditioned by years of racist propaganda, they might not take your word or your reputation as highly as they would take a white man's. And surprise, surprise, most people who were being kidnapped to be taken into slavery were not white, but the people kidnapping them usually were. Second, many judges didn't even bother to give you a chance to provide a defense. I know we just talked about how hard it would be to create a convincing defense, but some judges simply did not give the opportunity to gather enough resources to even attempt one of those ineffective defenses. They would just hear the testimony of your kidnapper, look at the affidavit, shrug, and just let everything happen to you. In other, shorter words, there were no protections for freed or freeborn African Americans who were accused of being escaped slaves. They were just as likely to be kidnapped and judged into slavery as people who were actively escaping slavery. And this absolutely happened, with the life of Solomon Northrup being possibly the most famous and well-documented example. After all, if somebody kidnapped a free person and convinced a judge already biased towards their accusation that the person kidnapped was actually an escaped slave, then they had a person to sell to any plantation owner on the market. The kidnapper was looking at maximum profits with minimum overhead, you know, and obviously they weren't concerned about human rights to begin with, so what's going to stop them from comparing that to their profits? Not only did the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 prevent people from finding freedom, 
but it actively increased the total number of people whose freedom was stolen. The problem was so bad that several northern states had to implement personal liberty laws that guaranteed a trial by jury for black citizens accused of being escaped slaves. Again, we've already talked about how hard it would be to prove their innocence, but at least they were being given a shot. For the purposes of this podcast, the most important thing to remember about the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 is the fact that George Washington chose to sign it into law and chose to enforce it. I mean, George really screwed up this year on the civil rights metric. We were trying to give him props for willing to scale back the violence he was committing against Native Americans. But even that simple act of goodwill cannot undo the harm caused by the Fugitive Slave Act. I'm giving him his worst civil rights score I think I've ever given him. He's getting the full negative three. Also, I wanted to make a quick modern-day comparison. Have you ever heard a political discussion where one side of that discourse points out a problem they want to fix, and the other side claims that that kind of rhetoric is creating division within the country and tearing the country apart. Well, when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed on February 4th, the representatives of the southern states claimed that the abolition movements of the northern states were creating division in the nation, and this was the justification they used for why the Fugitive Slave Act needed to pass. It was alleged to be a countermeasure to keep the country together. I just want you to keep that in mind the next time you hear political pundits talking about how rhetoric is creating division in the country. And here we now reach the final official metric for George Washington's score as president, integrity of office. Last year, we were very hard on George for allowing the Whiskey Rebellion to take root in the United States. With the Whiskey Rebellion still in full force, he's definitely not getting the full positive three. But have his other decisions spared him from the full negative three? Well, there is one possible area where Washington might have prevented corruption. On April 5th, 1792, Congress passed a bill that would have increased the number of seats in the House of Representatives. However, when Washington was given the bill to sign into law, he saw that the method they used to create each state's representative-to-constituent ratio would have given the northern states a disproportionate advantage in the House, which he considered unconstitutional. Thus, for the first time in United States history, the president used their powers of checks and balances to veto a bill of legislation. As a result, Congress went back to the drawing board to figure out a better apportionment approach. The result was the Apportionment Act of 1792, which was based on the Uniform Population Measuring Approach Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson had recommended. Washington does sign that bill into law on April 14, 1792. Now, I have no proof that Congress was trying to do anything shady when they submitted the original bill that Washington vetoed. 
I also don't have any proof that Washington was correct in his assessment about the northern states having too much congressional power if the bill was passed. However, the fact that they were using different population methods for each state could have created some loopholes that future politicians could have exploited for those exact shady purposes. So, Washington's choice to veto the bill was a critical choice to preserving democracy. But another area where Washington really made sure that corruption would not take hold was during the 1792 presidential election. In some ways, the second presidential election ever was even more important to the future of democracy than the first election in 1788. After all, would the president use his office to unduly influence the election? Thankfully, the answer was no. One major reason for that was Washington's disinterest. Once again, he did not want to run for the presidency. His health was starting to decline, and he was starting to get sick of the infighting between Federalists like Alexander Hamilton and Democrat-Republicans like Thomas Jefferson. Quick reminder that Democrat-Republicans are also referred to as Jeffersonian-Republicans, and I will be using those terms interchangeably. However, once again, he was overruled by everyone else. Both the Federalist ticket and the Democrat-Republican ticket had selected him as one of their two candidates. And both Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, who totally hated each other at this point, still managed to come together and jointly beg Washington to run for the presidency. They both agreed that Washington's leadership would be necessary to keep the United States safe during the French Revolutionary Wars. Between France and the partisan politics he hated, Washington probably figured he could remain the last line of defense if he won the election. Uh, that's the last line of defense against partisan politics, by the way. But again, he didn't actually want to win, so he had all the incentive in the world to run the election fair and square. Because if he runs it fair and he wins, he protects the nation. If he runs it fair and loses, it's not his problem anymore. Now, this election had a much smaller pool of candidates. Each party only fielded two people. And again, for each party, one of those two people was George Washington. So in a way, as long as Washington was willing to try, which we just said he was, then Washington was running unopposed. So, once again, the actual fight was for the vice presidency. The Federalists wanted to keep John Adams as the vice president to maintain Federalist power in the Senate, so they ran him as their second official candidate. The Democrat Republicans, or Jeffersonian Republicans, had chose George Clinton as their second candidate. Clinton was a governor for New York, a very vocal anti-Federalist when the faction still existed, and a very familiar name from the 1788 presidential election. Luckily for Adams, the Democrat-Republican fear of oppression worked in his favor. Despite having Clinton as the chosen candidate, a few electors in Democrat-Republican states chose to vote for write-in candidates instead of the official ticket. Thomas Jefferson, who very pointedly did not run because he did not want to lose votes in Virginia to Washington, got four of Clinton's electoral votes. And Aaron Burr, who was trying to steal the New York votes from Clinton, managed to get one vote from South Carolina. 
this actually wouldn't have made that much of a difference in reality since Adams would still have won 22 more electoral votes than Clinton, but it's still kind of fun to point out. Also for funsies, the Federalist ticket won 99% of the popular vote. Even in a system that can be as inconsistent as the Electoral College, a lead that high is still really hard to overcome. Therefore, Adams was the candidate with the second highest number of electoral votes, and just like in the 1788 election, this meant that he continued to be the vice president for the next four years. And of course, since Washington still had the highest number of electoral votes and remained president for the next four years, he was sworn in for his second term on March 4th, 1793. Of course, integrity to office, as wild as it sounds, is not always a good thing. Even if it was legal and expected for him to do so, George Washington could have always chosen to veto or not enforce the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. We've already established that Washington was very lazy in enforcing laws against whites squatting in Native American lands, so he could have been as lazy in enforcing this law that subjugated the black community. But Washington chose to sign the law and enforce it, and it just so happened that doing so would continue to enrich himself. Once again, Washington participated in slavery, and this law helped discourage most of the people he kept in bondage from any escape attempts. Most of them. We, we still have a few years to go regarding that incident. Of course, other people Washington had appointed to various offices had their own integrity to uphold. On August 11, 1792, the United States Supreme Court heard two cases, Georgia v. Brailsford and Hayburn's case. Both cases were overseen by Chief Justice John Jay and Associate Justices James Wilson, William Cushing, John Blair Jr., James Irondale, and Thomas Johnson. These cases set some important precedents, even if the former case wouldn't have its final decision made for two more years. Georgia v. Brailsford was a case that centered around the state of Georgia's lawsuit against British merchant Samuel Brailsford, as well as several other people who were allied with Britain during the American Revolutionary War. Georgia had claimed ownership to any debts owed by these individuals, whom the state had branded as freighters. So, every time Brailsford was given a payment by Georgia resident James Spaulding, that money was legally supposed to go to the state coffers, or at least that's what Georgia was claiming. Of course, none of the people now living in England were doing that. So the state of Georgia was attempting to sue Brailsford and other British merchants in order to force them to fork over the money. Now, the final verdict wouldn't be delivered for another two years, but an important question had to be answered in the meantime. Did Georgia even have a case? Could a state sue an individual in order to enjoin payments owed to that state? According to the Supreme Court, yes, yes they could. Regardless of whether Georgia was owed these specific payments, the very idea that states could sue individual people to collect owed payments was sound in the eyes of the present justices. As such, the case could continue, and it did for two more years. Hayburn's case was less of a legal case and more of a policy review regarding constitutional checks and balances. At the time, one of the many crises the United States faced was what to do with its veterans. Sure, many of the people in power that we have discussed so far were veterans themselves, but most were both wealthy enough and placed in positions of command early in the war to 
avoid having to live with serious repercussions. They had lower risks for combat injuries and more resources to spend treating and overcoming those injuries if they received them. Case in point, Governor Morris's wooden peg leg that we discussed last time. But most soldiers in the war were not so lucky. The federal government, specifically Congress, was trying to find a way to assist the large population of veterans that developed physical disabilities as a result of the war. Congress had developed a plan where disabled veterans could file claims and, once those claims were reviewed and verified, could receive financial compensation. However, Congress's plan would require the federal district courts to be the ones reviewing those claims. So, using the figurehead example of a person named William Hayburn, they drafted their plan as a petition to the Supreme Court and asked the court whether the plan would be feasible. In response, the Supreme Court threw up their hands and said, Not our problem. From their perspective, Hayburn's case was a matter of justiciability, the range of powers the judicial system of the United States actually has. The court claimed that reviewing disability claims was a non-judicial function, and therefore, not something over which any court, let alone the Supreme Court, should have any power. This decision forced Congress to come up with a new plan to serve the veterans. While this might seem like the Supreme Court passing the buck, it is still a case of the court making sure no branch of the federal government had too much power, even their own branch. Of course, a big part of integrity of office is your willingness to adhere to checks and balances. The Supreme Court ended up facing that music themselves. On February 5th, 1793, the Supreme Court heard the arguments for Chisholm v. Georgia. They delivered their decision on February 18th. This case is particularly important because Congress's dissatisfaction with the Supreme Court verdict led to the adoption of the 11th Amendment, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution that was not part of the original Bill of Rights. Brief context for this. Robert Farquhar, I don't think I pronounced that correctly, was a citizen of South Carolina who had given a variety of goods to the state of Georgia for use during the American Revolution. With the expectation that the state would provide financial compensation after the war, again, they have to get the money. Ten years passed, Farquhar died, and Alexander Chisholm, the executor of Farquhar's estate, still hadn't seen a dime from Georgia. Weird how Georgia was obsessed about collecting money owed to it, but wasn't willing to give money they owed. Then again, what do you expect from a slave state? So, Chisholm tried to sue Georgia to get that money. Georgia, however, argued that it couldn't be sued without its consent as it was a sovereign state within the Union. The Supreme Court had to decide whether or not the state could be sued by the estate. Is that a pun? I, I don't know if that's a pun, but I feel like I should apologize anyways. At the time, the answer was yes. J. Wilson, Cushing, and Blair stated in a... Wait, that's only four names. Oh, right. Sorry. I, you know, reading the script explains the script. J. Wilson, Cushing, and Blair stated in a 4-1 decision that Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution gave federal courts, or at least the Supreme Court, the right to remove the state's immunity to non-consensual lawsuits and hear cases between states and citizens. For the record, removing a state's immunity to lawsuits is called abrogation. Fun. So, as long as the case made it to the Supreme Court, Chisholm could sue Georgia. 
The dissenting opinion was Iredell, who thought that either pre-existing laws or Congress were the only ones who could set the rules for abrogation. In other words, no, the Supreme Court did not have the jurisdiction, and no, Chisholm couldn't sue. Well, Congress, especially those pesky Jeffersonian Republicans who loved them some states' rights, happened to agree with Iredell. Almost exactly one year later, on January 14, 1794, the United States Senate proposed and passed the 11th Amendment. The House discussed and passed the amendment on March 4th. See, the big problem that Congress had with Chisholm v. Georgia was the fact that Chisholm, as well as Robert Farquhar when he was alive, were not citizens of Georgia. Therefore, the 11th Amendment made it impossible to sue one of these United States as a private citizen unless you were a citizen of that specific state. The judicial branch could not accept lawsuits from citizens of different states, or foreign nations, just to be clear. And also to be clear, the Supreme Court was perfectly fine with that. They got checked and balanced by Congress, and they did not make a big deal about it. Washington also helped the Supreme Court stay stocked up for the year. When Thomas Johnson left the court, Washington appointed William Patterson as his replacement on February 27, 1793. Before joining the Supreme Court, Patterson was a U.S. Senator from New Jersey and the Governor of New Jersey. Not at the same time, obviously. Back during the argument over the Constitution, he tried, and failed, to have the Constitution's rules regarding the legislative branch grant each state the exact same number of representatives in Congress, regardless of population, which obviously was not a popular opinion. Patterson would end up serving on the Supreme Court until his death in 1806. During that time, he would help the cleanup from the Whiskey Rebellion. Now, technically, Washington accidentally violated the ineligibility clause because, when he nominated Patterson, Willie was still technically a senator. So Willie had to, or Washington rather, had to rescind the nomination and then try again on March 4th when Washington was sworn back in and Patterson's term as senator was truly expired. But from what I can tell, Patterson was worth the extra effort to put on the bench. And of course, it doesn't seem like Washington actually intended to violate the law to get Patterson on the bench. It's really hard to talk about two people with W's in their names. Then there's Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton. Washington may not have been taking the Whiskey Rebellion seriously, but Hamilton sure was. During the month of September in 1792, Hamilton had sent a tax official named George Clymer to investigate the state of the rebellion. As bad as the rebellion was, Clymer's report was still inaccurate enough to exaggerate the extent of the lawlessness and bloodshed. Even so, the report managed to alarm both Hamilton and Washington at least enough to do the bare minimum as head of state. On September 15th, Washington published a public statement officially condemning the Whiskey Rebellion and the terrorist activities of the Whiskey Rebels. Of course, Washington himself didn't actually write that. Hamilton wrote it, and Attorney General Edmund Randolph edited it after getting feedback from Washington. Randolph very pointedly removed Hamilton's threats of military action. Weird. So, even though Washington's integrity of office isn't as secure as it should be, he still had people pushing him to make better decisions. Perhaps even more importantly, he was willing to listen to his advisors, at least a little bit. 
Good thing, too, because the Whiskey Rebellion was really heating up this year. During August of 1792, some particularly radical anti-tax terrorists began hosting conventions to rile up rural Pennsylvania into more socially destructive activities. These included infiltrating and taking over the local militia detachments, setting up underground communication networks called Committees of Correspondence, which were actually used during the American Revolution, so that's how everybody knew how to make them, and setting up Liberty Poles, which were public symbols declaring independence from the ruling government, back before you could just, you know, throw a manifesto online. They also created an extra-legal court wherein citizens were tried for the crimes of foreclosing properties and collecting debts. Their threats of violence were so severe that federal tax inspector John Neville was denied an office in Philadelphia, which, again, is the current capital of the federal government at this time. He was denied because the landlord was that scared of the Whiskey Rebels. He thought that he would get tarred and feathered for just renting an office to a tax collector, because, you know, that's still some manner of support. That's, like, that's how bad the Whiskey Rebellion was. Not even the Capitol building, sorry, slip of the tongue, not even the capital city of the United States of America was safe from mob violence, largely because George Washington was so hesitant to do anything about it. Sounds weirdly familiar. But even opposing the rebellion verbally was better than nothing, and we can once again thank Hamilton for making that happen. So, to summarize... A lot of decisions made by Washington, as well as those made by people he chose to trust, were positive developments to making the presidency an honest career, even with the horrendous example of the Whiskey Rebellion and the Fugitive Slave Act. Washington didn't completely fail to do his job as constitutionally intended, so we're going to be a little nice here and give Washington positive one for integrity. Before we can calculate the final score, we should see if Washington gains or loses a bonus point as a result of bipartisanship. Now last year, he did not earn the point because Jefferson, who only got to have power through Washington's permission, went so far as to create an actual political party, the Jeffersonian Republicans. And this year accelerated tensions further when, on February 27th, 1793, the House of Representatives introduced the Giles Resolution, a formal but largely symbolic complaint against Alexander Hamilton's actions as Secretary of the Treasury, purely on political divide because they hated his Federalist butt. However, even though the partisan genie was left out of the unity bottle, Washington was still able to be a tool of teamwork through no fault of his own. The fact that both the Federalists and the Democrat Republicans wanted him to be their president meant that Washington was still able to provide the best avenue for compromise and negotiation at the time. So, even though he screwed up last year, he made the best out of the situation this year. I'm giving him the bonus point. And so, we conclude this year of George Washington's presidency. Where does that leave his score? Well, we gave him plus two for economy, plus two for diplomacy, plus one for war, minus three for civil rights, plus one for an integrity, and plus one for bipartisanship, bringing him to a total of positive four. Oh my god, even with the worst civil rights score on record, he still managed to get a positive four. Ladies and gentlemen, for once in this podcast, George Washington is better than Washington. I mean, he wasn't better than his first year, but you know, whatever. 
All right, and with that, we're going to go ahead and cool down with some additional fun facts. Just like we did last time, I split up the fun facts in half, so we would still have something to relax with as we're done celebrating Washington's success, but, you know, not ignoring his massive civil rights failure. Like, do not let these scores somehow excuse the fact that he promotes slavery. On December 8th, 1792, slave industry tycoon Henry Lawrence makes the world a better place by finally dying. The only other good things we can credit him for were helping negotiate the Treaty of Paris that ended the American Revolution and siring abolitionist and queer history hero John Lawrence. On January 3rd, 1793, a little baby girl is born. Her name is Lucretia Mott, and she will grow up to be a critical figure of both the abolitionist and the women's rights movements. On January 9th, Jean-Pierre Blanchard becomes the first person in the United States to fly in a gas balloon. And on March 2nd, another baby was born, a boy this time. His name is Sam Houston, and he will be the future president of the Republic of Texas. So that's a shout out for all you Texans, but that's the only shout out you deserve because your laws suck. That's it for this episode. My fellow Americans, thank you for listening to Better Than Washington. My name is Duncan, and I will see you all next time. Better Than Washington uses the song Americana by Mr. Smith under a fair use attribution license. You can find that song and the other works of Mr. Smith at the Free Music Archives. Of course, Mr. Smith does not accept or condone any of the opinions expressed in Better Than Washington, nor do Spotify, Anchor FM, or any other platform on which you are currently listening to this recording. If you want to support the podcast, please give a like and leave as many stars as you can on a review on whichever podcast platform you are currently using. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Van Washington with a capital T and a capital W. If you really like the podcast, you can also sign up to give monthly donations at anchor.fm slash better than Washington. Also, if you want to fact check me, I did my preliminary research on Wikipedia and then used resources that I could find online to corroborate select claims. Resources I used include the pbs.org and history.com articles regarding the Fugitive Slave Acts. These were the articles that specifically mentioned the fine force assisting escaped slaves was $500. I know that history.com isn't exactly the most credible place, but I have a little bit more trust in pbs.org, so I felt comfortable using that fact. I also found additional articles about Chisholm v. Georgia on the Library of Congress website, www.loc.gov, and at www.law.cornell.edu. Have a great week, everyone. Farewell for now.